0: Hello and welcome to the Circe Institute Podcast Network. You are listening to Close Reads. I'm David Kern, and as always here on Close Reads, I'm joined by Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh. Angelina and Tim, how's it going?
1: It's going good.
2: It's going great, David. So this David, you sound a little David, you sound a little under the weather. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say I've got a cold, um, and I'm you know extra nasally this week, a little more nasally than normal. Uh, and so, you know, if I, if I'm sniffling like that, then, uh, you know, you know why? <laughs> is <laughs> my, that a sound effect or is apologies. that really you? No, that was just me. Yeah.
1: No, you were just brought to tears at the sheer awesomeness of Lord Peter and, you know.
0: <laughs> Murder from a status <laughs> You're
1: wow. you know, just makes all men cry and all yeah. women. So, you know, we understand. I,
0: you, I was going to say, you may have been confusing our conversation <laughs> earlier with your own journals. So, uh. <laughs>
1: well played sir uh
0: well so this is the episode for the week of january 23rd um we're recording a little earlier than that because of the uh circe conference that's in louisville this week Um, so we're recording a little earlier than that but by the time you listen to this the first episode of our conversation on murder must advertise will have already been posted um And today we are going to talk about chapters one through four of that book. We talked last time about some, you know, like what makes a good mystery story and a little bit about Dorothy Sayers and her rules for mystery stories. We talked about Sherlock Holmes versus, well, I guess Lord Peter Sayers versus Conan Doyle. Um, And so a lot of introductory kind of overview material, you know, related to mystery stories. So now we're going to. Yes, sir.
2: I'm sorry to jump into the middle of your introduction, but I feel like because we're recording this early and because this episode won't be released until January 23rd, I think it might be nice to kind of look down the corridor of the future okay. and recognize that by the time this episode is released, yeah. either the Kern family or the Macintosh family – Will be very pleased about the results of the NFC Championship game. That's right. The Kern family, (laughs) the Kern family are avowed Green Bay Packers fans. (laughs) And I have issued, as an Atlanta Falcons fan, a long suffering Atlanta Falcons fan, (laughs) I have issued a week long series. I've issued a challenge of.
1: It was basically oh a fat wall. You put a fat
2: wall on Facebook. I did put a fat wall on Facebook. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, yeah, the, it's too bad that people will uh, be listening to this after the game. Because, yeah, you're right. One of our two teams will be headed to the Super Bowl.
1: I just wanted to say that I actually week. am dressed in black and white for the occasion, just in case I needed to jump in and, like, separate you two.
0: Black and white with some vertical
2: stripes?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I'm dressed as a referee, just in case it came to Angelina,
0: that today. that's just like every day. You know, wherever
2: you <laughs> That's right.
1: That is everyday, that's Angelina, outfit. That's it the is. role
2: that you play, Angelina. You're constantly go about refereeing, saying to people, listen, can't we see each other's point of view? And. <laughs> Can not we meet in the middle somewhere?
1: See, and as see, and see, and I'm I'm like stuck in the middle here, you know, in this in this whole who am I rooting for between the Packers and, and the Falcons? Because of course I love you both. And, and wait and you're
2: love- in the middle. Wait a <laughs> minute, you're in the middle. There is no middle.
1: <laughs> well, I was gonna say it's worse than being in the middle because of course on the one hand, you know, I love you both and I, and I want you both to be happy with the outcome. On the other hand, I grew up as a long suffering Saints fan, <laughs> which oh. means which means that in you know in the Bum Phillips era, and we've talked about this before, because Tim and I grew up in the very, very dark years of Atlanta and New Orleans, so basically it was always like a bottom to last place between... It was a race to last between the Falcons and the Saints. So, you know, the rivalry we have for, for who could be second to last is very intense.
0: Well, clearly, based- clearly the choice is already made for you, Angelina. But it's going to be a little weird. F- I mean, again, people who are listening to this already know the results of the game, and um, so... Yeah, one of us, when you're listening to this, one of us is very excited that our team is going to the Super Bowl and the other is um, downcast, downcast, but happy for the other person. I feel like we should
1: like Michael Scott does in that episode of The Office where he records two versions, one if he's happy, one if he's sad.
2: That's a great idea. idea. There you go. I will say before we kind of like actually go on to business, I will say that. No sooner had I posted my Facebook, you know, my invitation, my challenge for Facebook taunts between the Kern family and myself than David's brother Matthew posted. That was (laughs) well played. That was perfect. I have to admit, it was a perfect opening salvo. He posted simply a Super Bowl trophy (laughs) and wrote. I'll be posting some more of these this week to show you our other Super Bowl trophies. Yeah, he burned, he burned has, you
1: pretty good there, McIntosh. He did.
2: And I have no reply to that. Atlanta has never won a Super Bowl. Green Bay has what, David, four?
0: Yeah, they've won four, uh, lost one, and also won eight other championships before the Super Bowl existed. Yeah.
2: Yeah. That you is know- a category that Atlanta does not have.
0: Yeah. Well, I it's, I was gonna post. I was gonna go to this site called Pro Football Reference, and I was just gonna post, like I was. It's they have like all the playoff histories of every team, so I was gonna post the Falcons and just leave it there on your. On your page. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, we should probably move on because like ninety nine percent of our listeners could not care less about what we're talking about. Yeah. yeah um, right. Right. My apologies. Really, Lord
1: Peter awaits, and yeah. his sport is cricket. So yeah. let's move on.
0: Alas. Um, <laughs> So so we're here to talk chapters one through four of Murder Must Advertise. Now, one of the things that's interesting about discussing a mystery story is that it's such a slow build. It's, it's different than something like um, even The Wind in the Willows or Pride and Prejudice, where we can kind of look at – it's easy to look at individual segments of the book as, like, you know – self like standalone things right? Whereas in a mystery story everything is building you know they're dropping clues and there's smoking guns and there's you know you're constantly building tension and the tension's rising and falling and that's true of almost every story that it's you know dropping certain things but in a mystery story you really have to be conscious of specifics like very specific things that get dropped but then also you can't even if you know the end like we all knew that Elizabeth and Darcy were going to be together. We kind of discussed it with that in mind. Can't so much do that with a mystery story. So I think one of the things that we can focus on, though, is some of the things that Dorothy Sayers does craft-wise. And so what I'd like to ask first is go back to a question that I asked a lot in the first several episodes of this show with those, and that we talked a little bit about in The Wind and the Willows. And I'd love to hear from each of you about one of your favorite passages um, in these first couple chapters. Mm. But before we do that, Angelina, could you summarize the first yeah, four idea. chapters for our listeners? They, hopefully they've read it. And if not, then you should not be listening to the show. If you don't want to hear a spoiler of the stuff that this episode talks about. So, <laughs> um, the first okay, four well, chapters. So
1: the story opens on an advertising firm and you find out that there's been a death of a copywriter and they've got a new copywriter coming in. Uh, Dieth Braden, um, who of course is Lord Peter Whimsey, and uh, you find out in, in the course of the four chapters when he goes to talk to the boss kind of privately and the boss is like, so what have you found out that he's actually working undercover to try to figure out uh, the case behind this sort of suspicious death of this copywriter who has allegedly fallen down some stairs uh, to his to his death. So Lord Peter is getting to know everybody in in the advertising uh, firm and and kind of picking up clues here and there. And he is trying to get a sense of of, of who this Mr. Dean was, uh, who's the victim. And he reaches out to his sister. And there's sort of a, a, a tense relationship between the sister and one of the guys in the in the ad um, company, a, a Mr. Willis, who follows. Uh, Braden and the sister uh, out to try to find out what's going on and then we find out about that uh, Victor Dean is involved in the bright young things Uh, I don't know if it's a movement the bright young things sort of I don't know what do I call it Uh, The atmosphere in London the sort of seedy (laughs) underbelly of London known as the bright young things Uh, He's find out that Victor Dean was involved in that so he has used the sister as a sort of entryway into that so in chapter 4 he goes to one of the parties so I did look up what bright young things were, and that is the official term. And Evelyn Waugh wrote a novel called Vile Bodies, which deals with this same topic. It came out in 1930, um, where he sort of satirically looked at the bright young things and the bright young people. Um, so that was their actual name, and it was just uh, you know sort of post-World War I nihilism and, and hedonism. And so they would, they would have what in England is called fancy dress parties, and that's what they're called in this book. But if you're an American, you would call that a costume party. And, uh, and they would go and they would do drugs and have orgies and just live this you know, hedonistic, bacchanalian life to deal with the, the crushing despair of World War I. And so Dorothy Sayers is taking on what I consider to be sort of her darkest theme, which is that, that nightlife in London. Oh, and of so, course, Lord Peter makes a splash at this party, literally and figuratively.
2: <laughs> <laughs> a, a historical question, Angelina. Are the bright young things kind of analogous to the flappers in the U.S.?
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay. Same, Similar, same, same time same period. hmm Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And it's definitely the definitely the same impulse. And it's really interesting, too, because – modern, it's interesting to me that she is pairing those things together because modern advertising was also born post-World War One. Mm. She joined the firm in 1922, and that really is when advertising got started. This is actually, oddly enough, a particular interest of mine. If you ever come to my house, you will see that I have collected these magazines from the 1920s, and I have collected the advertisements from magazines in the 1920s. Uh, it's because it it fascinates to me just how quickly overnight the, the whole world was shaped by advertisements. And, you know, Dorothy Saves has got that great line in there that advertising is all about selling people, but not letting them know that they're being sold to right?
2: yeah. Um, yeah. and
1: creating the need and satisfying the need at the same time. Uh, and, and that, you know, that sort of anxiety and schizophrenia of consumer culture gets created in the 1920s. And so I'm just fascinated with the ads, one of my favorite ads is an ad for, um, palm olive soap. It was uh, uh, before it was just a dishwashing detergent. It was actually a soap marketed to women as a beauty product. And then the the tagline for this is "Why fade at 30?
0: Stop <laughs> it!
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, and it's like Stop Cleopatra's it. secret for eternal youth. And it's got the palm olive bar of soap. I mean like so here we are 1920 causing intense anxiety about why fade at 30 you're losing your youth you're losing your beauty and it's just all very fascinating to me and so I kind of feel like the advertising boom and materialism and consumerism is sort of coming out of that same impulse as the bright young things like it's all mm. just this response to this incredible despair mm. brought on by World War 1 because you had all this insane optimism leading into that right Right, politics and science and technology we are going to create heaven on earth and then it just all comes crashing down on them
2: this is one of the things we talk about with gutenberg students it's kind of hard to we're in such a pessimistic moment presently it's hard to replicate the feeling not that i lived through it um, but it's hard to replicate the feeling At the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, everything is – there's just this hopeful uplift that we are solving the world's problems. There's even – a lot of our listeners will be familiar with Hegel, the philosopher, H-E-G-E-L, his philosophy. He's tremendously influential, wildly influential, impossible to read, but wildly influential.
0: (laughs) Well, most influential philosophers are impossible to read because, because they're impossible to read they're influential right, right. <laughs> those two things go hand in hand
2: there's a relationship between inscrutability and power in yeah. philosophy yes
0: because if you knew what they were actually saying then you wouldn't believe them
2: yes right, right so hegel's whole his whole thesis is that the world is kind of moving in an upward progression through a thesis and antithesis and then a synthesis and the synthesis is kind of an upward synthesis. So for example, uh, you have the French Revolution, followed by uh, Napoleon, the strongman, comes in to kind of like create order out of the chaos. And then a synthesis out of that is the Republic of France, which kind of synthesizes both the strength of the Napoleon, the Napoleonic era with the kind of open egalite of the French Revolution. And it's moving in Hegel's theory Upward. And yes, just like Angelina said, this all comes crashing to a close with the World War One. You can't endure a whole lot of trench warfare and think, yeah, the world is moving upward and upward in a better, and better <laughs> way. That's just, it's an intolerable position.
0: So no I derailed us. I derailed well, us. We're back to No. Adelaide. Not at all, what? because
1: that is the that is the philosophical framework and cultural framework for understanding all of these stories. Even for understanding Bertie Wooster. I mean, that's that's the world. Every, every everything's fallen apart. We we talked about this before in in a previous episode where World War 1 is considered the defining moment that finally ends the Middle Ages. And mm. that has this profound effect on the aristocracy. Uh, and, and really the whole the whole society, right? The whole fabric of society and what holds them together. And uh, we don't know that we have necessarily righted ourselves since then, but in the years right after that, which is when Dorothy Sayers is writing, it, it's just intensely unstable. Yeah. So you see a lot of different impulses to try to bring some stability and meaning. On the one hand, just a total rejection of meaning, so nihilism and extreme existentialism, and I'm just going to go pursue pleasure to kind of cope with my despair, and then consumerism right which which i I don't know that i've thought a whole lot about that end of it but i I suppose it's the same sort of well if there's no point if i'm not building heaven on earth i might as well just fill my coffers Mm. and and you can profit off of convincing people that now products is what going to help give you the good life i guess maybe that's kind of it too
0: one of the things that we're seeing here which we touched on very briefly i think last episode is that you know we think oftentimes of mystery stories as being um not literature you know and so and I, but i think right. what we're seeing here is that you know these great mystery stories um this is why they fall into that category like the greatest mystery stories because they're doing something more than it's it's more than about the who done it right oh it's yeah, more oh, than yeah. About the that's case. why you
1: can read these even if you already know who did
0: it right, exactly exactly and and there's so much more going on and i think right away in this story we see sayers laying out the stakes you know the stakes are more like they're bigger picture than just how did this guy die and why and who did it. They're, exactly. There's bigger, more universal stakes, and that's that's I suppose the reason why we still read these books, you know, nearly a hundred years later, just as we read, you know, the Conan Doyle Sherlock Holmes stories, because there's something universal going on there. Um, and I and I, and that's what you know, that's what is true of great literature. Um, and, and what do you see those stakes? That.
2: What do you see those stakes being, David, in this in this murder well, mystery?
0: Well, what I mean is that it's, I'm just speaking to what you're saying about the state of mind Uh-oh. of in this in this case Europe, but the world in, mm. at large. You know, at this time, and she's she's giving us a treatment on you know what the the state of mind of people were, um, and why they you know why they were acting the way they were acting and doing the things they were doing. And you guys were talking about existentialism and nihilism and um you know so you said you were taking us off track but i was i'm just kind of saying you know i don't think yes, that is off yes. track it's very you know it's crucial to to what's going on here and of course to sayer's ideas in general you see a lot of this stuff in a lot of her other work where she's trying to reclaim something and, and try to help avoid you know the cultural malaise that you know ultimately kind of did take over for a while Yes.
1: Absolutely, and I think that Sayers—that you have to look at Sayers and Lewis and Tolkien—is all trying to do the same thing. Like they're all yeah. responding to World War One. It's fascinating to me that that all of them, while they were all, you know, well, not all of them, not Tolkien, but but Lewis and Sayers, both profound essayists and apologists, right? But both of them understood the importance of story too for reclaiming the culture. And it's so fascinating to me that they. You know, in, in the one hand, with Tolkien and Lewis, you've got fairy tales and fantasy as sort of the 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 fictional impulse to how to correct things, and with Sayers, it's the detective novel. But I think it's the same impulse with with the storytelling. Uh, someone I can't remember where I read this, but someone had pointed out about there's sort of this almost sacramental nature to a detective story, and it speaks to what you were talking about with. Every detail is profoundly significant. Yeah. Nothing nothing is just, you know, ordinary. Everything has all this meaning. And that's the same thing that a fairy tale shows us. So in her own way, I think Sayers is doing exactly the same thing that Lewis does. Although at first glance you would think there's nothing in common between Nornia and the world of whimsy, but I, I think they're profoundly related.
0: Well and you can, mentioned- you
2: can you Angelina, can you make more of those connections for me? What how do you see them being so closely related the, the world of peter whimsy and the world of narnia
1: well they're both i think trying to enter enter you into a, a bigger world than what meets the eye right so c.s lewis does it fairy tale like you know it's the same thing right i'm in london but mm. i'm going to go through this wardrobe and i'm going to see this other world in the detective novel, it's the same thing right it, it's 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 things look one way on the surface but really there's this other reality that's happening Uh, and and there's justice with a capital j and there's goodness with a capital g and there's evil with a capital e and we're trying to right the world we're trying to bring back order and justice and uh so so i I think that it's really i think they're both dealing with the same sorts of things
0: Uh, yeah angelina you use the word uh sacrament that there's a sacramental nature to mystery stories and I think I don't know if I if i'm this is just popping into my head because you said that or if I heard it somewhere else, if I heard it somewhere else, I should give them credit, but I can't because I don't know who it was but uh it, I think the word liturgical is also interesting for a mystery story because there's kind of yes. the approach is kind of there's a pattern to it, right but it's not a pattern that is um like when it's followed it is uh it makes it cold right like you don't you don't read a mystery story and say well, these are these are the patterns of a mystery story, and so I know exactly what's going to happen, or I'm not interested in this anymore. But the the way that you go about telling the story is um, it's 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 got signposts to it, mm-hmm. to where you can say, okay, yeah. I know I'm at this point now, and that means that I know what's coming next, or I can be prepared for what's coming next. The same way, like if you want to think about a church liturgy, like there are signposts that help you, you know, and I don't want to get into like all the denominational things we could talk about, but the nature of it, the purpose of it is that there are signposts that allow us to know what's coming next or to to be prepared to experience the next thing in a, you know, specific way. Um, and yes, and that's very true also
1: of fantasy and fairy tale. So it's yeah. the same thing, right? So when Lewis talks about, well, if Eustace had read the right kind of books, he would know not to trust this character. It's the same sort of thing, right? Yeah, the hairs on yeah. our necks stand up when we know, oh, oh, warning sign, warning sign. It's the same thing in a detective story.
0: Yeah, and the, and you, it seems- go ahead. In liturgy,
2: part of what's wonderful about liturgy, about the consistency of the pattern in liturgy, is that you don't have to worry about what's coming next. You know what's coming next, and instead you can focus your mind on the content. Yeah. You can actually, like, um, if now is the time to take the Eucharist, now is the time that we take the Eucharist, and you can concentrate your attention on the Eucharist, the meaning of the hymns, the words of the hymns, what have you, yeah. Um, yeah. rather than if you're kind of thrown into chaos every Sunday morning or every time that you read a mystery novel, you your mind is kind of preoccupied with what comes next and you can't focus your attention on the specific content of the symbols, of the details. And that's part of what's fun about reading the mystery is you kind of can, I don't know if this is the right way, you can kind of turn your mind on autopilot with regards to the plot you know that you're going to hit certain posts at certain times. And what you can concentrate on are the particular suspects, the particular clues that the story is unfolding. Right.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and uh, I think, too, when you think about the fairy tale form and the detective form against the backdrop of the despair of World War I, then think about how profound the message is that Lewis and Sayers is giving that the good guy wins. Goodness yeah. will conquer evil in the end. There is goodness. There is order. We're in a state of disorder and chaos now, but we can move toward order and goodness and justice. That would, be prof- that would be just a life-giving balm to the angst of the age.
0: Angelina, for our next issue of the magazine, you should write an article about why the mystery story is the antidote for what ails us.
1: Ah. That would be a great. I would love
0: that. that would you be should awesome. do that, Angela. Well, let's let's talk some specifics now about this particular book. Let's talk about some of those characters and some of those clues. Now, Angelina, you are um, you are in love with Lord Peter. <laughs> you you claimed last week that you are more in love with him than Mr. Darcy. oh yes i'm guessing some of our readers are were a little incredulous about that or i keep calling them oh no i don't know i I bet i do not
1: think i'm alone in this i do not think i'm alone in this at all
0: okay can you give us an example from the first couple chapters here of why lord peter whimsy is such an appealing character to you like can you give us a passage that you can share that reveals this to us and I did not ask oh. you this ahead of time, so... No,
1: you did not. I mean, because part of... If you of all, really, really love
0: gonna... them, really, really them, it shouldn't be that hard. Oh,
1: well, <laughs> I know what it is. I was just going to... Again, you know, my whole thing is you've got to take Lord Peter as a whole, because any little snapshot is just, you know, that's going to be a little unfair and misleading. But it's his dry irony through the whole thing. I mean, he's so dry and ironic. He's crazy brilliant, but he's got the one-liners, you know, and ugh. And look at how the ladies respond to him. Oh, he's a pet.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. That was very funny.
0: Okay, so passage. What's what's the it, what's it oh, be?
1: Oh gosh, a passage. Just any of the times where he's got those one-liners. Okay, well, how about when he when he catches when he spies Willis spying on him, and he's like, uh, "Elementary, you know, don't sit in front of a mirror if you don't want anybody to know that you're watching them." And that whole that whole. Um, that whole passage there, and then of course, the way he is at the party, and um,
0: and that's all in chapter four, right?
1: That's all in chapter four. I'm trying to find who.
0: Well, Tim, while she's thinking, I, I would love to yeah, know. Yes, so
1: because I would have had a chapter if you'd have had one.
0: How do you, uh, how, what are your impressions of Lord Peter here as a, as a first time reader? Angelina's got history with Lord Peter, <laughs> and her affection is therefore colored. Well, to I, was just
2: gonna, I was just going to say this. In the first four chapters, he's pretty opaque. We don't see much about him at all because he is – the first thing that I remember is there's a little mention that he is, um, I think, on the first page. Hold on. Let me find it. He's <laughs> Wooster. They refer to him as Wooster in horn-rimmed glasses. Do yeah,
1: that's at that? the very beginning. That's in the first chapter, first couple pages.
2: But we don't see much about him. In the first four chapters, he's he's kind of hidden. Um, well, yes,
1: because he's you see, asking he,
2: lots he, of questions.
1: And he that's later it yeah. kind of reproves himself, rebukes himself for his shoes almost gave him away. I mean, he's not going to act the dandy. He's not going to act Bertie Wooster here because that's going to immediately, they're going to know he's a toff uh-huh. and not a copywriter, right? Well, so
0: let's compare the Wooster. Let's do that Wooster-Whimsy comparison because uh, she obviously draws attention to that comparison by referencing Woodhouse very specifically. Yeah. And then we and it also got brought up last week. Uh they were contemporaries. Uh yeah. But but in what ways do you see them as similar? I mean, there is the sense of humor. The way she writes, especially dialogue, is very similar to Woodhouse. Like, <coughs> there's a snappiness to it, which feels very stage like. Like I could imagine Tim and I on yeah. stage performing oh, a yeah, yeah. scene together, right? Like the scene that he does with Ingleby in chapter three, uh where they're kind of uh, talking about Dean and then about copywriting and things like that. Like that's a very staged, like it feels Mm -hmm. very theatrical.
1: And she wrote (laughs) plays too. You know, I feel like her writing is very uncluttered. Does that make sense? Like it's most, it's a lot of dialogue and it's just very uncluttered.
2: And it's very, very colloquial. I mean, there were so many. Oh, right. You can't even
1: keep up with the slang and she's pretty edgy in this one, which gives you a sense of what life as a copywriter in an ad firm for for a woman must've been. Because uh, this is a book, and you know she's really toning it down for that, and 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 it's kind of edgy. I mean, the joke about "Don't let anyone pinch your seat," and Lord Peter says, "Attaboy!" That was hilarious.
2: <laughs> <laughs> the anti-feminist rears her head. <laughs> <Huh>. <laughs> Here's a little example of uh, the colloquialness of this. Is just. Two sentences, I think in chapter three. What ho, that absolutely wangs the nail over the crumpet because it struck me really as being the caterpillar's boots. (laughs) Like, what does that mean? Okay,
1: and that's what's so great about him. Okay, and this is this is this is this is a personally a thing I am attracted to in people, right? That so Lord Peter is this brilliant scholarly mind who collects all of these out of print Latin texts and things like that. He's always on the hunt for some new book. You don't see that in here because we don't get to see him at home. But when he's at home, he's always super excited about the latest book he found. So he's Indiana
0: uh, Jones, you're saying?
1: He's pretty much, yeah. So on the one <laughs> hand, he's like well, Why didn't you just and, say that in
0: the first place? And he's, now and I he's, understand.
1: Okay, now you get it. Yeah, right? So there's like almost two Lord Peters. So he's like kind of this you know, almost effeminate, kind of like super concerned about his hair and his necktie and his shirt and his his trousers and his shoes. And and, 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 so he's always saying the latest slang, but then he'll turn around and quote Latin and I have to stop everything and try to muddle through some translation. I mean, even in this story, which is definitely not typical... He has quoted Shakespeare a few times. There's been a lot of literary references. And then mm. I love when The Office people are like, well, you know he's smart because he wouldn't have even tried to make that joke unless he was really smart.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: So we say, that's what we say about Tim on this, on this show.
2: <laughs> <laughs> As a way to cover my inadequacies.
0: <laughs> no. Uh, so... And, the, and, and Angelina, how, again, how do you pronounce his name in this? He's going by what? Dieth?
1: Well, okay, so I never knew how it was supposed to be pronounced, so I just looked it up on the internet, and it's saying it's typically pronounced Dieth.
0: But That he's going... is bizarre. Yeah, well, his I'm sure it's one of those things
1: that comes death. from another language.
0: When you see people yeah, with the name exactly. St. John, it's like St. John. St. Or... John is really
1: St. John, right, yeah. right. I'm sure it comes down from some long tradition, because he's Lord Peter Dieth Brayden Whimsy. Hold up,
0: uh, hold up. It it is a little on the nose. St. John? Yeah,
1: Yeah, you didn't know? No. So in Jane Eyre, it's St. John Rivers.
2: Get out of here. Yeah. Boy, you learn something every day.
1: (laughs) Man, that Masters of Victorian Literature is coming in handy
2: today. (laughs) No doubt it is. (laughs)
0: Uh, it, it feels a little on the nose at times that a mystery writer like a, that a mystery solver his name is death like a Death, and, and
1: he does make that joke yeah. in this story right, not in the other right. stories but in this one he is i mean yeah, so yeah. this is a very atypical lord peter story because he's trying to rein in the whole foppish toff thing that he's got going on in the other stories because he's trying to be undercover he's trying to be the you know more of an uh, of an average bloke
0: yeah. OK, so we mentioned last episode and I use the term uh, in in media race. So in the middle of things that this story just mm-hmm. kind of uh, drops us into the middle of things The the death has already happened and um, he, we just kind of get dropped in there. What do you think of that? I know this is a a, a common sayers thing to do. But what does that do for the story for you? Like, do the stakes feel high right away, or does it feel confusing? Or, or how, how, what does it do for you? And I'm going to ask Tim this, because Angelina's already read it before.
2: Well, it forces me to pay attention from the first word. And, man, you're right, David. She drops us in the middle of things, the opening chapter, the, the opening scene. There's no description. We don't know where we are. We don't know anything, and we're in the middle of a conversation, and we have to pay attention from the get-go. And I think that's it's almost like great training for the reader. Great training for the reader because she's telling us right away, you've got to be paying attention to everything. There's no time to warm up. My, my dad was telling me about a huge Hollywood producer, um, gosh, I think back in maybe the 40s. And he was notorious for watching the first run of or the first edit of a film. And every time he would say, cut off the first seven minutes and start after the first seven minutes. His point being, if you give all of this kind of prologue and explanation during the first 10 minutes, you threaten to lose your viewer because the viewer just gets a little bit bored watching all of this explication. But if you drop the viewer directly into the movie and force them to play catch up, then, if they do play catch up, you've kind of captured their attention. And it seems like Dorothy Sayers is doing something similar here. drops us right in the middle of the story. We've got to pay attention from the very start.
0: I had a fiction writing professor in college who would basically, every time I wrote a story, he would just look at it for about five minutes and he'd, he'd like give me it back and like take the first three pages and throw it in the trash. And he'd like start somewhere no and start and rewrite it. Yeah. <clears throat> and almost always he was right, you know, uh, as, a, as the creator of the story you feel attached to certain things that can be you know implied you know and, a yeah. good reader, and a, hopefully a good reader will catch on to it but as a writer you need to trust your reader and it does seem like um uh Dorothy Sayers is is letting us do some work early on like she's letting us um she's she is taking for granted the intelligence of her reader and I don't mean that in a negative way but she's like assuming that we are intelligent yes. enough to know what she's doing
2: Absolutely, and you know that that she trusts the imaginative powers of human beings, um, and it's very refreshing to read that kind of a story, um, because the imaginative power of human beings is just incredible. Just reading those first, I don't know, three pages, I bet if you could look inside each of our brains, each of us were kind of creating. Uh, hypothetical narratives that made sense out of all of these conversations, right? You're constantly creating hypothetical narratives that make sense of all of the data of these conversations. What we do every single day, all the time, is we kind of create stories forward when we are driving to the supermarket or showing up for work. We imagine what uh, the next three, five, eight hours is going to be like, and then we enact them. And inevitably, our narratives never really fit the actual events of our day, and that causes usually some level of frustration—minor frustration, major frustration. Um, But throwing us directly into a narrative like this and forcing us to imagine what the story is that's being told, what has come previously, what is going to happen in the future—is a—it's a testament both to kind of good detective writing and it's also a testament to how powerful the human imagination is Mm -hmm. sometimes for sometimes for harm oftentimes for good
0: angelina um does knowing the story and having read it multiple times how how do you think about what she's doing just craft wise in these early chapters because what we get is we get the mystery is set out there right away like i said but then you also Mm -hmm. get i mean right away he is uh, there just and he's asking all these questions and on the surface um, it feels like anybody with a pulse should recognize that it's kind of weird that he's asking all these questions but that's (laughs) but like that might be something that's just to the reader because we have more we know more than the other characters but having knowing how the story resolves itself and a lot about this character and then of course the rest of the stories and and how Dorothy series goes about telling stories um, what do you think of what she's doing there
1: you know every time I reread one of these books, I'm always surprised that I can't remember who did it, and I think oh, that's really? a testament to her writing like I get sucked into the story, I get sucked into how she how she sets it up and i get I, I, I get sucked into seeing it through Lord peter's eyes and huh. I, it doesn't i i can't remember i cannot remember who did it I cannot remember how this is resolved. I remember that's scenes but I can't remember who did it, and that's true every time I reread it um You know, I love the first line, and by the way, I mean, could there be a more in media rest? I mean, we're literally in the middle of a conversation, Mm -hmm, right? And I I think it's not even just that we're jumping in. I feel like at the beginning of the story, I got hit by a tidal wave. I'm disoriented. I cannot keep track of who's who's. I I seriously wanted to stop and make a flow chart, but I didn't. And I think this speaks to what Tim is talking about with the power of the imagination. I think the whole story sort of is a microcosm for the form as a whole, right? We, We The reader have started off in chaos. The form
0: of the mystery story?
1: Yes, we the reader have yeah. started off in chaos, yeah, and we're going to sort through it ourselves. Yes. Yeah, yes. we're going to sort through this. We are going to move toward order ourselves as we go through the story. We're also totally seeing it through Lord Peter's eyes because he also is being thrust into this and trying to get his bearings, um, just like we are.
0: Right. I, and, I think it's
1: brilliant on a plot level and a theme level,
0: and from a pe- like a rhetorical perspective, you know what that chaos creates tension. For the reader. Right. And the tension is – you don't have a good mystery story if the the reader does not have some tension. And it doesn't – like you don't even have to feel like, oh, I'm tense because there's a man behind the wall with a gun or because there's, you know, the crazy person with the axe or or don't – you know, because you don't – it doesn't need to be that you're yelling at the character, don't do it, don't do it. But there's tension that, that you get as a reader that just kind of comes with not knowing everything.
1: It's very natural everyday tension that we go through, right? Anytime we're thrust into a new situation and we're trying to keep track of everybody's names and what's going on and what's expected of me. And I mean, he's trying to solve this mystery, but he's also trying to figure out how to write ad copy, which is hilarious.
0: Well, that's that's where the humor comes in. And anybody that doesn't know a lot about um, advertising, Angelina was just talking about collecting ads from the 20s. And I recommend you go online and Google it because what an ad looked like then was significantly different than what you're going to get now um or even that's even true of like the the 50s and 60s. So if you look at an old magazine and then you compare the ad for I don't know, soap <laughs> to an ad mm-hmm. for some other women's product you, you know right now. There's a
1: lot of copy. There's a lot of words. Yeah,
0: lots of words, lots of copy. And so, you know, the headlines were very, you know, it, there was there was more science involved, more description, more, you know, it was less it was well, although be increasingly less so at the time, but it was less about uh you know, trying to it appeals to someone's emotions um mm. but that was changing right. you know now advertising is about appealing to the emotions like you mm. like yeah something half the time you don't even know what's being
1: advertised except that i'm supposed to feel happy right now
0: <laughs> yeah right or yeah. intrigued or whatever um, or or it's about tone like you're now advertising a lot is about like a product is associated with a tone like mm. whether it's suaveness or whatever that word is suavity what's the word or it's uh, (laughs) suave or or cool right um or it's just you know you you put an attractive person in an ad it has nothing to do with the thing might not make you attractive at all but there's an attractive person in it and so it creates tone and it was less that was less so the case in the 20s although but more than it was 10 years before that but so i recommend you go google 1920s advertisements and see because it gives you some context for what you what some of the things they're talking about and the way they approached it um can i
2: can i interject here i'm going to take us far afield just for a second can you guys remember no. the last time you saw an and <laughs> yes it's true david so unlike me can you remember <laughs> the last time that you guys were taken in by an ad just like absolutely without even knowing it you just were like I must buy this product. I must use this service. Can you remember the last time that that happened for you guys?
1: No, I cannot. Let me tell you, what, I actually know someone in advertising, and and every time he starts with, a, we're doing this, and this is who we're appealing to, I always would say, deadpan, and very seriously would say, that wouldn't work on me. And one day, finally, he said, honey, we are not advertising to you. <laughs> He said if if we were gonna wait for you to buy things, we'd all be out of business. So <laughs> so the answer to that is no. Advertisement does not ever I never think, oh, I have to go buy this.
2: If it's not a book or an ingredient for gumbo that's
1: word of mouth anyway, so you know.
0: David. Um No, not really, but I, I respond to tone a lot like Me too if a site if a website has like is is generally speaking the kind of products that i'm going to buy whether it's like books or i don't know clothes or whatever it is then you know what's going to separate them from a competitor for me is like you know i'm not, going to, not, it's not, less, not necessarily going to be conscious at first but there's going to be like the way they present themselves is going to nudge me in their direction I'll, it's so much of it now is about creating an awareness or making your brand appealing yeah, and that. But I think, mm-hmm. and I think that does work, even when you don't think advertising's working.
1: I'm sure that's true.
0: But it's really interesting to see how that happens in this book. How they're trying to, like, even in these first couple of chapters, how it, very humorously he's trying to navigate that world. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like, how One do I convince that's... this person to buy from me? From me? And I've uh-huh, not, I don't. Uh-huh. He's like, he's pretending he doesn't know anything about it, of course. But go ahead. One Adrian. of the.
1: One of the motifs that, that Dorothy Sayers has got going in this book, which is particularly intriguing to me, is where she sort of pulls back the curtain and, and lets us see sort of the conflict, right, between the, the company and, and the copywriter, right, uh, uh, that, that this idea that the company is always putting these unrealistic expectations uh, and demands and rules and, um, on, on the advertising campaign, right? Uh, and there's a lot of scenes about that that are humorous. Uh, so one of one of the scenes at the very beginning is, you know, Lord Peter's first assignment is he's got to write a copy to sell margarine, but he can't mention butter, yeah, right? Yeah. And and that's funny. And okay, so that reminds me of this is this is the real stuff that Dorothy Sayers had to deal with. As a copywriter, okay? And I think you're probably going to find this amusing because I think it's hysterically funny. So going back again to that Guinness campaign that Dorothy Sayers worked on, which is the most famous ad campaign in the history of Guinness. If you go on the Guinness website right now, which I did, in their shop, they sell the vintage posters of these ads. This is mm. The most famous ad campaign they ever did. So if you're wondering how on earth does Guinness beer end up with an ad campaign featuring colorful zoo characters and slogans like drink Guinness is good for you. This is how that came about. So they show up at Dorothy Sayers firm and say, we want you to sell our beer, but you can't mention beer. (laughs) Okay. And we want it to be family friendly and we want you to emphasize the health benefits of our product.
2: Oh, dear me. me. It's basically saying, we've got a job for you that is impossible to do.
1: And so basically, one of the greatest literary minds of the 20th century is on this task (laughs) and creates that amazing campaign with the toucan and the line, Drink Guinness, It's Good For You, or My Goodness, My Guinness, which was another one she came up with, or It's a Lovely Day for a Guinness, which you'll notice none of those say beer.
2: That is crazy. Well, that's what see, a little bit of genius by Dorothy Sayers.
1: Right, it made me super impressed with her. Like, I just can from reading this book. Just, I can imagine like just that moment when they're like, "So we want you to sell our beer, but you can't mention beer." <laughs>
0: hmm. Yeah, that. But I mean, it's, I, we should do a little study. We should go around like when we see advertisements, and we should try to figure out uh, what how many advertisements actually mentioned the, what they are.
2: Oh, right. That'd, That'd be, be such a fun experiment. I I remember my favorite commercial of all time. This is a moment that I got completely brought in. Uh, it was around 99 or 2000. Volkswagen did a commercial. The, the music bed was this beautiful song by Nick Drake called... Uh, Pink Moon. Do you guys know the song Pink Moon?
0: I wouldn't. I, I know what it is. I know what it is.
2: This commercial is so wonderful. And you see the product. You see the product in it, a total, which is the car, for a total of maybe one second, maybe. And then there was a follow-up commercial. And this is maybe even a more brilliant commercial, a Volkswagen commercial about a guy going to work wearing the same dull blue suit, gray suit, monochromatic tone of the office. He does the same thing every day. And then the camera catches him walking across a skyway, right? A skyway between two buildings, you know, up several stories. And the camera pulls back when he's, when the guy's eye catches something on the street below, the camera pulls back and it shows for the first time color, like bright cerulean blue sky color that's above and below the skyway. And it pans back just when you see the look on his face when he is, I suppose, seeing the Volkswagen Cabrio for the very first time and you never see the car. You never see the car and it made me want to go out and buy a Volkswagen cabrio. It was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant.
1: I've always thought the Volkswagen ads were really well done.
2: Oh, they're so smart. And I think they do such a great job of doing what David described. It creates a it's a tone. It's this sort of aspirational feeling more than anything else.
0: Hmm. Yeah. And and that's you know, it's interesting that we're talking about tone related to advertising, but then these early chapters also, as we said, are very much about creating a tone for the story. Yeah.
1: And she's kind of tough on her own profession too, which is really interesting. So one of my favorite passages, or one of my favorite passages, is uh, about six pages or so into chapter four. this conversation that Lord Peter is having with, who is he? Oh, Ingleby uh, about advertising, right? And um, Braden shuddered. So Mr. Ingleby says, I think this is an awfully immoral job of ours. I do, really. Think how we spoil the digestions of the public. Oh, no, that's <laughs> Brayden's line. This is Ingleby's response. Ah, yes, but think how earnestly we strive to put them right again. We undermine them with one hand and build them up with the other. The vitamins we destroy in the canning we restore in revito. The roughage we remove from Peabody's Piper Parridge. We make up into a package and market as Bunbury's breakfast brand. The stomachs we ruin with pompane, we reline with peplets to aid digesting. And by forcing the damn fool public to pay twice over, once to have its food emasculated, and once to have the vitality put back again, we keep the wheels of commerce turning and give employment to thousands, including you and me. This wonderful world, Brad, sighed ecstatically. <laughs> <laughs> this is like Wendell Berry. This is intense social criticism of her own profession.
0: Hey, by the way, I before I was on this call here, I was on the phone with Wendell Berry for 15 minutes. Just wanted to throw that oh, out
1: Well, you should have started with that.
0: <laughs> no, that's just an <laughs> aside. It's just, you know, it's just my job. Um, did he ask about us? Did he <laughs> did he ask what we thought about <laughs> Jaber Crow? Did, did he say, well I, done I,
1: meeting Jaber Crow? I'm
0: pretty sure he doesn't care what we think.
2: Um, what? Well,
1: what? <laughs> that just makes me love him more.
0: He was. Uh, it was a pretty hilarious conversation. Sometime I'll tell you about it. Um,
1: okay. Look, oh, Wendell Berry uses a phone. That's technology. Well,
0: kind of. He said he that he twenty miles he, to get to. He, sa- he said he makes a point not to be near it as much as possible. So
1: <laughs> was it right. like? Was it like Mabel? Mabel, can you get Wendell on the line? Was it like that? <laughs> no,
0: it wasn't. It wasn't quite like that. Extension
2: three six one. Call <laughs> for Mr. Barry. <laughs>
1: Dyke, um, 724.
0: <laughs> yeah, I had to use a rotary phone too. Um, yeah, right. Uh, I had to send a telegram, our listeners actually. listeners
1: have no idea what we're <laughs> yeah. saying, Like Every old movie I've ever seen.
2: This might be a good uh, moment to recommend one of our earlier podcasts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jaber Crow's... <laughs> J- Windowberry's
0: Berry's Jaber Crow. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Um, uh, so... We only have a couple minutes left here and Tim, I'd love to hear um, as you get ready to read the rest of this book um, and and as you get deeper into the story and in the mystery, what are you most, what are your questions that you have besides just uh, what happened? Who done it? Who done it? Yeah. Like what characters are you interested in learning more about? Uh, and we'll say even besides Whimsy because, I mean, assuming we, we're going to learn more. But what, who's suspicious to you? What moment that you read in the first four chapters stands out as, as suspicious or as raising other questions?
2: Well, we may be done with the uh, deceased Dean. We may be done with him, but I'm kind of curious about why everyone dislikes him so much. I don't know that I'm going to get a whole lot more about that, but he's clearly a disliked character because of the company that he keeps. You know, I— I'm kind of curious to know, do they dislike him because of his reputation? do they dislike him because he was actually kind of like an animal in the office? you know he was some untoward character in the office so um
0: so the mystery of the character of Victor dean uh, the character
2: of the deceased, the posthumous character
0: yeah um Angelina, you said you don't remember who who done it, so um I'd love to hear what are you most uh what, what questions would you like to have answered you know moving well, forward?
1: I'm, am I alone here and I'll throw this out to all of our listeners when I read a Dorothy Sayers novel, I am never driven by who Done it like it's so secondary to me. I'm Interesting. so just I'm so just smitten with the world she creates and the characters and, and the way that they talk and you know, I love those like um, uh, oh! I can't believe I'm drawing a blank. The screwball comedies, you know, all of that witty banner and they talk really fast and it's full of this slang that I can't decipher. I just, I'm just so charmed by all of that. Mm. I, I just, I just enjoy the world. And then I enjoy thinking about uh, some of the heavier stuff that she throws in here and there. You know, like that's just a, that's a throwaway line to set up Braden to, to to make his joke and then to to further pump Ingleby for information. But it's super insightful and very shocking to see that kind of comment about what is happening to the food supply, you know, in the nineteen thirties. Hmm. She, she just always strikes me as being so ahead of her time with her perceptions.
2: Hmm. Hmm. I to go back to it, I'm kinda I'm like Angelina, I'm really curious about the whole ad agency. I mean the ad agency. Is writing copy based just on the prompts of the client. They're not, in other words, they just don't have the technology to write copy and it seems like get everything approved uh, before it goes to press. They've got to write this copy and then it goes to press. They're not going back and forth with the client endlessly. I've been enough in client services, not in advertising, but in client services. And the back and forth with the client is the most aggravating, annoying thing. I'm kind of intrigued that the ad agency that Dorothy Sayers is describing um, s- still retains a little bit of artistic uh, license. And yet, it yet it they think? really
1: like, you know, bristle under those two clients that come in weekly and disrupt their week with these yes, demands.
2: Yes. Right, right. And of course they bristle at it because they're used to having some level of individual integrity with regards to what they put on the page they're trying to meet the client's demand but um they've got a little bit of freedom they okay their own final copy am i right or have i just not read enough in the book to know that sometimes they get editorialized by the clients later? i
1: always i thought the client had the final approval on the first four chapters when they oh, were I describing the process that. but you know that might have been just how it worked for those two that she described so i don't know david what did you how'd you
2: read it
0: um I didn't think about it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll need to go back and look at it, but i didn't read yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't read that part closely enough um, <laughs> but um, there's a question for us to look into i I too am interested to see you know uh how the inner workings of the agency and these different characters and how they play into it, and just to be a part of their process, I think will be interesting and and how he how that process uh, of advertising of creating advertising plays into the mystery itself and the solving of the mystery.
1: Did you think about Mad Men at all when you were reading this? I did.
0: Oh yeah, definitely.
1: I did because it's interesting just to see in how, you know, a couple of decades there's going to be such a shift. I mean, you get the idea that these copywriters are not the most respected people. Whereas in Mad Men, these are like powerful. Yeah. Pulling the strings from behind. Right.
0: Yeah. Um, because yeah.
1: this was, this is of course the beginning of the ad industry and, yeah. and they've yet to tap into the full potential of, of everything that can go on there. But it was interesting to me to see the same sort of dynamic, to see the women struggle to get um yeah. any you know, any kind of respect. I mean just actually just kind of taking a step back. I and mean, I've always come into this world knowing who Dorothy Sayers was and coming into it already with the respect I had for her and feeling like well, they were darn lucky to have Dorothy Sayers writing copy for them. What? But uh <laughs> <laughs> it's, my, it's my Lord Peter imitation, but you know, if I take myself out of that, she she gets a job with them in 1922, and she's basically nobody. And and from their, it's really funny when you research it from their perspective. She wrote detective novels in her spare time.
2: Huh. She was, yeah.
1: She was a copywriter, so it's really kind of amazing to me then.
2: And that- we look back, don't we, Angelina? We're like. She did ad copy in her spare time. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. When did she have sure. time to write this ad for Guinness?
2: Right.
1: Uh, but uh, really makes me feel like a loser when people. I find when I hear anybody writes a novel in their spare time, I'm like, okay, I, I'm I'm a loser. I have no excuse. But um, what, what what is the spare time? There's Netflix. See, see what right. can happen when there's no Netflix. But anyway, um, uh, just, well, just I'm just read. sort of amazed. I'm just sort of amazed then that in 1922 she's able to write copy and to earn her living by her pen. This is really sort of extraordinary. 'Cause you even see in Mad Men the idea that it's a big deal that Peggy gets to be a female copywriter. Right? right. So it was hard even in the fifties. Mm-hmm. So think about nineteen twenty two. It just I think it's just a testament to her that she was really quite remarkable.
0: As yeah. you said, she yeah. was ahead of her time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, well, we should wrap this up. Tim Tim's gotta get to a meeting. But uh Tim, uh this episode will be heard after the game, but nonetheless. Um Good luck to your Falcons. Good luck to your Falcons.
2: to you. I'm so nervous. I'm so nervous. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do Eric two different
1: Rogers. endings. One in which Tim so is
2: really nervous. happy. Yes. <laughs> Our next show, one of us will be
0: glum. Well, we'll have time to. We'll have had time to process it. Uh, <laughs>
2: really, will really, you really, really, David? We're going to record on Monday. The game is on Sunday. Well, no, this <laughs> this, 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 Friday. This,
0: this is this is going to air the Monday after the game. Then we'll record on the following Friday. So That's there'll be five true. days to. That's true to process
2: but i think that in the next podcast one of us will be emotionally elated the other will be downtrodden <laughs> but it will not be in sync with the actual events of the nfc championship no,
0: exactly exactly i'm overthinking this do you think am i just over maybe it? a little it's <laughs> cool though
1: you're having your moment in the sun and you deserve it
0: <laughs> thank, <laughs> well, thank tim, you well tim get the off Saints
1: already won their super bowl yawn yeah <laughs>
0: Tim, go ahead. Go to your meeting. We will talk to you next time. All right, David. Uh, Bye, Angelina.
1: Bye-bye, guys. For
0: Tim McIntosh and for Angelina Stanford, this is David Curran saying farewell here on the Searcy Institute Podcast Network. And we will talk to you next time on Close Reads.